Well, good evening. Welcome. Good to have you here. We're going to get started momentarily. I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer. Good to see you all here tonight. Appreciate this. Uh, We're continuing on into uh, the fall months, into September. Uh, We're going to keep going our way through basics, and uh, as long as it continues to be a blessing, uh, do keep this hour in prayer. I'm considering uh, resuming our PMW next week. Looking forward to that at the 7.30 hour. Um, I may end up teaching both. I'm not sure when we'll get uh, a rotation back up and running again, so uh, keep that in, uh, in prayers as well. We're going to uh, handle the doctrine of parapatology tonight. Let me open with prayer. We'll pray that the projector starts working, and uh, we'll take it from there. Shall we pray? Dear Father, we do thank you tonight for the truth of your word and the blessing we have once again to return to this basic series, to review the basic doctrinal studies that every new believer, every believer, ought to have a handle on. Father, uh, help us to not only understand for our own personal application, but to, uh, to have this material down so well that we can instruct others, we can teach others, we can uh, explain uh, what it is that we believe and why. I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we learned a little trick. There's a device under the desk that sometimes sometimes gets in a bad way. There we go. All right. And so we just unplug it and plug it back in, and it's happy after that. All right, we left off. Last week we dealt with soteriology and uh, discussed different aspects as it pertains to salvation. And... Um, didn't get a lot of uh, emails afterwards or complaints or questions or anything of, of that nature. So uh, I can throw it open again as we kind of were rushed at, at for time. Are there any follow-up questions or concerns or other issues as it pertain to where we were, not last week, but two weeks ago now? Because uh, we had our potluck Sunday last week with uh, Lost Pines that was here. So it's been a couple of weeks since we were here last and, and spoke of that. I think the biggest issue that I wanted to stress is to make sure that we're clear, um, we don't unnecessarily confuse things, and that we're, we're clear on what is the gospel and what, what is faith placed in for eternal life. And sometimes those terms are used loosely. And when they're used loosely, sometimes I think there, there's room for miscommunication between uh, one another when there really doesn't need to be. All right? And so the object of our faith is Christ. We want to be so clear on that. We, we don't want to confuse things or have people believe in something other than Christ. Okay, And in particular, I think where it's misstated most frequently is um, as it's phrased in a, a, a point of information about Christ. All right. In other words, instead of believing in, it's believing that. Believing that he died on the cross, most commonly. All right. Um, it's not the the mental assent to a data point or a fact or something about Jesus. I believe he was born of a virgin. I think that was true. I believe he was born in Bethlehem. I believe that he was without sin. I believe that he died on the cross. I believe that he rose on the third day. I believe he ascended to the Father's right hand. And all of those facts. And see, the thing is, we can we can talk tonight about a lot of facts. And I could survey you and you could give me a lot of good facts about Jesus. And we can add all those facts to the, to the soup, right? To the mix. It's a good thing about soup. You can always add more ingredients, right? You're just adding to your soup. Um, but the question, I think, is legitimate. Are all of those facts necessary for the person to trust Christ and receive eternal life? And what's the difference between trusting Christ and maybe trusting Christ and still being ignorant as to certain facts, if you don't know he was virgin born, does that affect your faith if you trust Christ? See, and so some of these things, and, and, and the, the point of the exercise is not to, um, we're not deliberately trying to be obtuse or deliberately trying to, um, you know, uh, we don't want to get, sometimes theology gets so esoteric we're debating how many angels can dance on the head of a pin or, or something like that that's not edifying in any sort. Um, but the, the content of the gospel, the content of the good news, there's, there's tons of content because there's tons of good news, all right? And we can keep it as simple as Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, or we can, we can add to it and flesh it out and get as detailed. We can get as detailed 
as the person we're talking to wants. Because as long as they're positive, as long as they're hungry, as long as they want to keep talking about Jesus, man, I'll keep talking about Jesus. I'm, I'm not going to cut off that conversation as long as they're eager and they want to hear and, they, and, and, and it's productive and we're talking. That's, that's great. I, I will never end that conversation. But how much is, is too much or how much is, is sufficient whereby we can stop and we can ask? I think it's a useful question. I love the Evangel approach. Some people are critical of it, but I, I appreciate it. Um, they, they come to a point where they've, they've explained everything and given the good news, and, and then they ask a question. You know what it is? They say, is there anything right now that is keeping you from trusting in Christ for eternal life? And if there is, tell me. You know, what is it? What is it that's keeping you from trusting Christ? What, whatever it might be. And, 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 then, and then we have a chance to follow up. You know, they say, well, I'm just not sure. I don't understand. Or, well, you know, I've got to think about this. I've got to think about that. And, and in my mind, I enjoy that because as long as they're going to be transparent and tell me what it is, that's great. You know, super. Well, let me know. I'll keep praying for you. And, and when, when those obstacles are gone, then uh, we'll, we'll talk some more. You know, because a, a day will come when there's there's nothing left that's keeping it from happening, and and it's a it's a marvelous approach, and I enjoy. It. I know some some evangelists don't, uh, but I do. I I enjoy that as a uh, as a method. All right. Well, the next step after soteriology is parapatology, and I'll move on into that unless we have more any questions or anything related to salvation. But it's good to know that there's a follow-up to salvation, that salvation is not the end, that we don't say, hey, great, glad you're saved, and then we dump them and abandon them and never talk to them again. No, the, the point is, is that we get saved, and then we begin our Christian walk. We begin our growth. That salvation is not the end of the plan, it's the beginning of the plan. It's step one. Because until we have eternal life, we can't proceed in what follows. Um, it's not in the notes, but I like Ephesians 3.10. Uh, I'm sorry, Ephesians 2.10. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And that's why we have to uh, study the the doctrine of the believer's walk. And it's useful that the Scripture calls it a walk. It's useful that the Scripture calls uh, the new birth a new birth. I, I love how it uses birth as its analogy. And so it relates it to, of course, human birth, and we can relate to that. And how we all start off as babes, and then we grow, and before you know it, you're walking. Okay, there may be a little crawling along the way, but there's a process, and it's the same thing with with babes in Christ. We want to get them to the point where they're walking, and how can they walk? And what's the, what, what is the Christian walk about? And so uh, it's it's uh, I think useful to um, take a brand new believer and let them know. Guess what? You now have a new life, a new manner of life, and the Lord has expectations. That uh, the whole point wasn't just to save you so you could do nothing until you get to heaven. The point is to save you because there's a whole lot of stuff to be doing here and now. To be preparing you for eternity. And we can appreciate that. Alright, the term parapetology derived from the Greek verb parapeteo. It means to walk and is often used to both physical walking and metaphoric applications. We have the same idiom today if we talk about somebody's walk of life. You know, what they do for their uh, vocation or their walk of life as a uh, English idiom. The New Testament describes the believer's walk with the prepositions in, by, and according to. And I think those, those are useful. Useful preparations. Walking in, for example. Can you think of any walking in passages? Walking in the Spirit. Walking in the light. What else? Walking in love. There's a several walking in. Okay, but There's also by. Walking by. And, and sometimes they, they double up or overlap. Because you can walk in the Spirit, you can walk by the Spirit. You can walk by faith and not by sight. There's a lot of walking by. okay, And then there's walking according to. And these uh, expressions are useful. And I think they help, particularly on a basic level. All right, Just to keep it as simple as we can. In, by, and according to. Just so we have parameters that we can use. Good biblical parameters that we can point to verses and say, here it is. How do I walk by the Spirit? How do I walk in love? How do I walk according to? All right, and what am I supposed to walk according to? And how do these prepositions guide the, the Christian walk? And so um, that's how the outline proceeds in the notebook. The simplest biblical expression for the believer's walk is the phrase walking in the light. John, 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, 
We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And this, uh, once you do some more advanced studies and you get into some aspects of the grammar and, and whatnot, we find that, you know, it's uh, it's uh, maybe we will, maybe we won't kind of circumstance. Not every believer walks in the light. We're supposed to. We ought to. It's It's better when we do, and uh, he'll discipline us when we don't. But the, the recognition that we've got volitional choices in obedience or disobedience, and that, that the alternative is walking in darkness, I think it's critical that we, that we uh, teach a brand new believer this on day one. In fact, my favorite thing to do is teach rebound, teach confession of sin, to start right off the bat with 1 John 1, 9 and say, all right, we've got a new manner of life now and, and this sin thing's not going to go away while we have a physical body. So let's talk about what it means uh, you know, the, for your first sin after you're saved, uh, hopefully it won't be a shock to you, <laughs> particularly if the evangelist did a good job to describe what salvation is. All right, I said, now look, you're saved now, you have eternal life, you're going to go to heaven when you die, but in the meantime, you still have a fallen body and we're going to fall short and we still commit sins even though we're saved. Okay, And uh, just relax, you don't have to get saved all over again, but here's what you've got to do. <laughs> okay, uh, You've got to confess. And the answer in salvation is, is uh, the process for salvation is believe. The process for, uh, for uh, uh, fellowship is confess. Okay? And, uh, and these issues, I think, are important as well. The smallest of children comprehend light and darkness. And so the option of walking in light versus walking in darkness is, is simple to describe to even the youngest of children. And it's, uh, it's simple enough. It's entirely a volitional one for believers. And so what are you going to do? You're going to walk in the light or walk in the darkness, you know? And if you if you insist on crossing this room before you turn the light on, then you might stub your toe, you might hit something, you might tr- get tripped up. But if you turn the light on, you see, "Oh yeah, I left that there last night before I went to bed, silly me." And uh and so when you turn on the light, you see it, you see the stumbling block for what it is. But if you insist on walking in the darkness, then that thing you left there before you went to bed last night is going to trip you up when you go shuffling into the into the bathroom the next morning. You, for, you forgot that you left that thing sitting there, and there you go. So simple to teach and consistent with the Scriptures, all right, that leave it with our volitional choices. How do you want to walk, in the light or in the darkness? It's the issue of spirituality versus carnality. Verse 6 of the same chapter makes it clear that believers can volitionally walk in darkness. It says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now this is as simple as it is, but you'd be amazed at how many people make it more complicated than it needs to be. Primarily because they are bound by a, a tradition that says believers can't do this. <laughs> okay, It says if they were truly saved, they would never do this in the first place. And so clearly if they're walking in darkness, they must not have really been saved. They've, they just made an empty profession or what have you. They're not of the elect. Well, we're going to relax and say, let's just handle the scriptures on the plain basis that it presents itself, that the we here is, is, is us, okay? And the Apostle John includes himself and his audience and us. We are the ones that uh, are the believers that are being addressed here in 1 John. And um, that kind of takes you into larger questions. And the people that try to say, no, it's, it's evangelistic written to unbelievers so they can get saved, that's a tough case to make and, and it's easy to, uh, to refute in, uh, in so many different ways. So if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You might recall last week I introduced concepts such as reality and realization. That's what it means to practice the truth. The truth is the truth. Reality is the reality. The positional truth, reality, is a glorious thing that each one of us has. We're, we are all dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the reality. We need to make that reality, though, a realization. We need to experientially live out that positional truth. Otherwise, we're just lying to God, lying to ourselves, lying to the world, and we're not putting into practice what that reality is. So we can volitionally walk in darkness, choosing to function in a manner contrary to the truth of God's word. Verse 7 is just as clear. We can volitionally choose to walk in the light. And so the option then is left to us. What do you want to do? 
It's as simple as that. And if you want to walk in the light, uh, confession has been made uh, available for us so that we can. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There has always been a cleansing procedure in every plan of God. I'm, I'm convinced of that. We don't know precisely what the cleansing procedure was in the angelic world, but we have some clues. All right. We know in the, in the Old Testament for the uh, Levitical priesthood that the cleansing process involved a laver that stood outside the holy place and, and the priests were required to wash their hands and their feet. And, and Jesus taught the principle, the difference in foot washing versus a bath. He told Peter, he says, you don't need a bath, you're already saved. You just need the foot washing procedure for the, that incremental cleansing that happens in the, uh, in the Christian walk. All right. So walking in the light means we're choosing to function in a manner consistent with the Word of God. And this is the only walk that God will find to be acceptable. The believer priest, so walking, is not only ceremonially cleansed, but literally cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And this, this is important too. The Old Testament placed a lot of emphasis on the ceremonial purity. All right? Remember though, the substance belongs to Christ. The substance belongs to us. You and I, we operate in the reality. When we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that is a a complete reality. It's not simply a ceremonial thing on on a a shadow. All right, the barrier, of course, is the barrier of personal sin. When we commit a sin, that's the barrier. And once we commit that sin, in fact, before we commit it overtly, we've committed it mentally. And when we commit that mental attitude sin, we are in the position of carnality. I think it even precedes the commission of the mental attitude sin to the attitude that wants to commit the mental attitude sin. Because then we're already in the sin of omission by not walking by the Spirit. Okay? And so attitudinally, when we're no longer walking by means of the Spirit, we will fulfill the lust of the flesh. Attitudinally, we're already on a negative volition track that is credited, I believe, is credited as a carnal state in the absolute uh, state of carnality versus the absolute state of, of spirituality. All right? Does that make sense? Not every pastor teaches it that way. But Jesus clearly said, if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. And that's before you've ever done the deed. Okay? The mental attitude has to precede the, the external deed. All right. The, um, and the absolute nature of light versus the absolute nature of darkness. You know, you're looking at these verses, walking in the light versus walking in darkness. Uh, they seem to be either or absolute issues. There's no middle ground. There's no fuzzy Okay, And I realize, man, our postmodern culture really loves the fuzzy. They love warm and fuzzy, and let's just kind of try to paint some nuance with this. And, and, and all that is, I think, is, is Phariseeism. I think that's just somebody who wants to sin, somebody who's, who's looking for the fine print that's saying, well, who's my neighbor? How can I get out of this? All right. No, it's an absolute issue of light on the one hand, darkness on the other hand. And that, that's borne out in the whole, God, in the whole book, First John, right? God is light in, the, in whom there is no darkness whatsoever, no darkness of any kind. They are absolute spheres. So uh, if you deny the sin nature within you, you are under a dangerous self-deception. That's First John 1.8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. That is self-deception, Okay. And we, we want to have mastery, we want, to have, we want our carnality to be fewer and farther between, we want to have longer stretches of spirituality and, and smaller portions of carnality. We would love to be mostly sunny with partial clouds instead of mostly cloudy with patches of sunshine, all right? Uh, that's, that's how we want our spirituality to be. We want to be mostly sunny, mostly in the light with occasional clouds because we never have to sin ever again, and that's the, that's the reality. Likewise, a believer who lives in denial of the personal sins he has committed. And typically that comes, sorry, I meant to make that larger before we started. Um, most often than not, I, I found, is, is people that are making excuses for their personal sins and acting like, well, they're really not all that bad. And if they're really not all that bad, well, then they're probably not even sins at all anyway, so let's not worry about it. And, and it's just self-delusion, and again, you're making him a liar. And you're subject, once again, to the sphere of darkness. His word is not in us. See, that word should be richly dwelling within us. 
And that's the, the benefit of walking in the light. So the answer in every case is the simple process of confession. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, okay? And the nature of confession, we've studied in the past as well. The Greek word is homologeo, to agree, to say the same thing. Homo legeo, okay? Same, you're speaking the same. That means you're in agreement, that you are voicing what God voices with respect to our sin, okay? Keep in mind, though, it's not admission, <laughs> you're not just owning up to the sin. It's not an admission saying, yep, God, I did that. All right? An empty admission is not a confession. Okay? I think the reality is on confession. Uh, Proverbs says, confess and forsake. The true confession is such that in homologeo that you have the agreement with God with respect to that sin and how abhorrent it is and how it is not compatible with his character and how it is not uh, acceptable for a child of God. And uh, again, that Proverbs text I think is clear, confess and forsake, right? If, If you're just admitting what you did and you have every intention to do it again tomorrow, I don't think that's homologeo. In my mind, in my faith conviction... You're just owning up to something in some kind of a mechanical legalism thinking that you're treating First John 1 line like it's, a, a, it's, a, it's an incantation, it's a spell. It's some kind of magic words and hocus pocus. And if you, if you say the right words, if you start it with dear Heavenly Father and if you admit what you did and you end it with in Jesus' name, amen, well then that counts. And that's my incantation. That's my witchcraft uh, formula spell casting. And then I, God is bound to forgive me because I've, I've used the proper... Uh, the proper doctrinal uh, formula for my for my prayer. No, you didn't homologeo at all, okay? Because you didn't say in agreement concerning your sin what God says concerning your sin. And the idea of just owning up to something as if God's ignorant of it until you tell Him what you did. God knows what you did. He knew before the foundation of the world you were going to do it, and He put that sin on His Son on the cross. So we're not informing him of something he doesn't know. But we are making a declaration in agreement with his declaration. See? In fact, this is such a a, a point of emphasis to me. Uh, I, I think Dan even taught a whole series on this when he was in 1 John and really stressed it at, at, at great length. Um, only because I, I've just... I've seen harm come from people who thought they were confessing and weren't confessing. They're just following a, a doctrine they were taught and in and, and, and what, what Pastor Eichmann calls mechanical legalism. You're following a mechanical process and you're a legalist about it as if that counts for something. All right. Anyway, this is the labor of our tabernacle service. A brand new believer must be taught how to confess their sins. You know, and if you, if you don't teach them this from day one, then you know before you know it, they're going to be carnal, and they won't know how to how to deal with that, how to remedy the carnality. Aaron and his sons were ceremonially cleansed at the beginning of their priestly service. They were consecrated, set apart to serve as priests to the Lord. We understand that's a body cleansing, and you want to read the details on that in Exodus twenty nine. You can, but notice it was only done once. It was only done at their consecration as priests. They didn't have to do it again and again and again. It was only done once. Similar to us, at our consecration as priests. We become priests the moment we're saved. And at our consecration as priests, we have our complete bath, which the Lord told Peter. You've had your bath. Aaron and the sons then required subsequent cleansings at the bronze laver. And so that's the incremental cleansing, the hand and foot cleansing that was done daily. And that represents our process in the New Testament as confession. And so you can go to John 13, verses 5 through 15, and we've got the, uh, the aspect there. And, and it's, it's interesting, you know, because, see, for a believer in the Old Testament, they didn't have the, the ritual cleansing procedures that the priests had, that the Levites had. Or the, you know, the, uh, uh, certain groups tried to incorporate similar things. The Pharisees uh, invented all kinds of cleansing procedures for themselves, because they, they loved you know, showing off how holy and separate they were and, and clean and better than everybody else. But none of that came from Scripture. It, you know, some, some schlub from the tribe of Issachar, he didn't have to do any cleansing process and on, on a daily basis, on a regular basis and so forth. I mean, he wanted to, you know, for the feasts, he, he had a cleansing process. But, but 
Uh, but just on a daily basis, it was only the priests and the Levites that, that had any required cleansing until we get to the church age when we have a universal priesthood. And now we have the need for universal cleansing, not just ritual cleansing, right? Because the ritual was something else. You could, you could be unclean for just basic daily life things, you know? Deliver a baby and you're unclean, okay? Twice as long if you're a girl, <laughs> if your baby's a girl, right? Um, marital intercourse between a husband and a wife. Nothing wrong with that. It's biblical, it's great, it's fun. But it would leave you ceremonially unclean for Pentecost or Passover or any of the feasts. All right, and there's a reason for that. God was setting apart a holy people for a holy purpose. Other things, touching a dead body. If you had to bury an animal or a, a person and whatnot, um, left you unclean. Anyway, the ceremonial was, was stressed heavily in the Old Testament. The reality, of course, is our, is our blessing. Jesus Christ taught these principles to his disciples, although Peter was a little slow in picking up the concept. And that's his personality, you know, um, speak first, think later, uh, you know, put a foot in your mouth and then put the second foot in and try to solve it. He, he thought that, oh no, Lord, you should never wash me. You'll never wash my feet. And then Jesus rebukes him and, oh, okay, oh well then, and then, well then wash my head and my everything too. And missed the point until Jesus very patiently taught him this issue. All right. Actually, I'm just summarizing and assuming everybody here knows what I'm talking about. Are you familiar with John 13? Are you familiar with the story? I can stop and teach it if, if folks are not familiar, but I think I'm getting nods from everyone here. All right. Confession of sin is a vital doctrine taught throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's examples of it in Leviticus 16, 2 Samuel 12, Psalm 32. You know, in a lot of cases, confession was practiced when there was nothing else they could do. You know, David, all he could do was throw himself on the mercy of the Lord and confess because there was no sacrifice for the sins he had done. There was nothing Levitical that was going to bail David out. Everything Levitical was going to execute him for being a murderer, being an adulterer, and, and the sins there. And all he could do was, uh, was go to the Lord in prayer and, and confess. And so um, he says in Psalm 32, and, and I like going through these simply because there, there's, there's a crowd out there that mocks 1 John 1, 9. They mock it, they, they hate it, they accuse folks of making stuff up. And in and, and 1 John 1, 9, it's not our only verse. It's just the easiest one, okay? It's the quickest one for us to find in the New Testament as, as believer priests. But there's a whole foundation for it in the Old Testament. Psalm 32, 3 through 5. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night, day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Okay? And delayed confession only makes matters worse. Delayed confession, and whenever the carnal believer decides he's still, you know, he's still having some fun, he's gonna, he wants to get a little more fun squeezed in before he finally decides to confess or whatever. Well, that that last moment of fun you were hoping to squeeze in is not going to be much fun because the hand of God's judgment is coming heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier. Because when you don't confess and you know you need to. What is that? That's just an additional sin. He who knows the right to do and does not do it, sins. So when you are convicted that you are carnal and ought to confess, and then you don't confess, you just committed the sin of omission for not confessing because you were under conviction. The Holy Spirit convicted you. You knew you should have confessed. Why didn't you? Oh, you're trying to squeeze in a little bit more fun before you confess, right? Say, well, I'm going to have a bath anyway here in a minute. I'm going to have a shower or I'm going to have a, not a bath, but I'm going to be cleansed in a moment here anyway, so let me just squeeze in a little bit more. Blasphemy. How dark is that? The hand of God gets heavier and heavier. Then after the Salah, verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Remember we were talking about the difference between atonement and expiation, the difference between forgiveness and the, uh, the payment for the sin and the remedy for the guilt? 
Sometimes there's passages that create two separate categories for the sin and the guilt of the sin. All right. So there's Psalm 32. Uh, how about Psalm, uh, let's see, Leviticus 16, 21, and 22. This is in the, in the uh, ritual where you lay the hand on the goat to identify and the, sin, the, the scapegoat takes the sin away. Second um, Samuel twelve thirteen, and this is great too. Here's where he's finally exposed. For nine months, David's covering his tracks. For nine months, David's living in denial. David's thinking he's getting away with stuff until Nathan shows up in Second Samuel chapter twelve and uh, tells him a parable and makes David mad. and And uh, David says that man deserves to die. <laughs> As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And Nathan says, yes, sir, and you're the man, right? You're the man. You are the man, in verse 7, and here's your judgment. And it's remarkable, when you read down through this, the sword will never depart from your house because you've despised me. You've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes, give them to your companion. He will lie with your wives in broad daylight. This this happened. This was fulfilled. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. And, and look at this. To me, verse 13 is so key. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. How different is that from something that would have come out of Saul's mouth, Right? Oh, it was not my fault. Oh, I did obey. Oh, the people made me keep the sheep. Oh, well, you know, Saul was never short of an excuse. He always had a ready excuse. David was making no excuses. David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And see the response? Nathan said to David, the Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. Man, how close was David to the sin and the death? Right then, right there. I think if he'd have said anything other than the words that he said, if he'd have said, oh, but, or but, Lord, or well, if he'd, any kind of weasel words, anything other than I have sinned against the Lord, and, and the angel was right there with a the sword ready to execute the sin unto death. That's how close he was. And the Lord has taken away your sin, you shall not die. However, because by this deed you've given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. Another important principle I think that we note is that confession does not make everything go away. Confession doesn't wipe out all the consequences. We're, we're cleansed. We're forgiven. He's faithful to forgive us our sin. He's faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But he's not faithless to remove every temporal circumstance from the consequences of what we've done we do face those consequences. And there's some sins that last, you know, you face consequences for, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, some sins, you end up raising a baby after that, don't you? Okay? One night of sin and 18 years of, of consequences. Or actually a whole life of consequences. Doesn't end at 18, all right? A whole life of consequences after that. <clears throat> And so uh, David faced consequences for the rest of his earthly time, you know, the rest of his physical life. But he was forgiven this night. And that's much better. You know, you want to be in fellowship again. You want to be back walking in the light again so that as you go through your consequences, and as you face the ongoing divine discipline, it is uh, cursing the blessing. It is a joy. It is a privilege to be able to testify that uh, yep, God is righteous. God is just. And do so in fellowship instead of out of fellowship. Psalm 51, 1 through 4. This is his confession on this occasion. This goes in, in perfect tandem with uh, the passage we just read. The prescript of the psalm tells us that. It's a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. And it's, uh, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. You know, that's, that's what we read in First John, is it not? If we confess our sins, we deserve to be forgiven. No, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We don't deserve to be forgiven. But he is faithful and just. Why? Because Jesus Christ did not deserve to receive our sins, but he did. All right. 
According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And there's other offenses against man. We think he sinned against Uriah, right? He killed him. You know, he cheated with, on his wife. Those are offenses against Uriah, but they're not sins against Uriah. Are we clear on that difference? Because Uriah is also an unrighteous, finite human being who needs a Savior. The standard of righteousness is God and God alone. Against God and God alone do any of us ever sin, even if we do commit offenses against humans that need to be reconciled, that need to be uh, remedied. There there needs to be, um, in some cases, restitution paid and and other things that can be done to, to try to mitigate uh, those human offenses, still it remains that sin is against God and God alone. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. This is the, the total depravity of humanity. We're born in Adam. From birth we are sinners. Verse 7, purify me, wash me, I will be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. <laughs> Is that, are those literal bones? Is it in metaphor? I mean, he kept silent for nine months. How much pain was he in? Created me a clean heart, O God. Or hide your face. Verse 9 says, hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Created me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. You know, realize that when you're coming out of a prolonged period of carnality, your volition is going to be damaged. You're, uh, it's going to be a while until you can kind of restoke a hunger again and get back on a positive basis. David admits this here. So he says, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Work in me to have this. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now that's an Old Testament context. We don't have to worry about that. But in the Old Testament, prophets and those who had the Holy Spirit, you could leave as freely as it came. Right? We don't have to worry about that in the New Testament. We have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Restore me to the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. In other words, give me the positive volition I need to make this a, a permanent repentance. I don't want to be on the up and down roller coaster. I don't want to confess today and then be back in the sin problem again tomorrow. Sustain me with a willing spirit. And then he goes on to say, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. That is a very humbling verse there in Psalm 51.13. It means that we have the opportunity, even the responsibility, to be able down the road to teach other believers about how faithful the Lord is with us when he brought us through those times of darkness. Okay, and I realize that there's there's folks that don't like that verse, but it's there. I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you, because there's folks that want to say, "Well, it's, I'm forgiven. I never want to mention it again. I never want to bring it up again. It's not their business anyway. It's between me and the Lord." And and I understand that. However, what's the priority? Your pride, my pride, or this brother I'm looking at that's about to step down a horrible path. And do I not love him enough to tell him, hey, wait a minute. Okay, I've been there. You don't want to take that road. Okay, if you love him enough, then you will fulfill that 13th verse there. I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. There's another concept. We have sin, we have the guilt, and then we've got the blood guilt And that's an ongoing consequence that defiles land, that defiles people, that defiles territory. A concept there. I mean, think about how he defiled Jerusalem with the murder and the adultery. And uh, we don't even think about that anymore. We're defiling the land. We saw that in Jeremiah. That's Psalm 51, Psalm 130, verses 1 through 4. Out of the depths, there's some gospel hymns that use that. Out of the depths, I've cried to you, O Lord. Can you ever sink deep enough that he can't hear you? That's the thing. If you're still alive, you can still confess. You can still repent. Until that that 
sinner to death is executed, if you still got breath, I don't care how deep you are, confess. First uh, Kings 8. This was a process, too, about praying towards the temple and as a people. It deals with a, a corporate confession. Proverbs 28, 13, he who conceal, I mentioned this earlier, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. That's why I think it's, it just falls so short if all you're doing is confessing and you're not forsaking. The original doctrine of rebound was titled the doctrine of rebound and follow through. And it seemed like that follow through kind of got lost along the way in some people's minds. It's confess and forsake. Jeremiah 3, verses 12 through 14. That's a corporate confession and a corporate returning on the part of the nation of Israel, but there's principles we can glean there. Daniel 9, 4 through 20. Here is a national confession. (laughs) You know, man, you're talking about intercessory confession? I I haven't systematically put notes on paper yet, but I'm, I'm convinced it's valid. I just see so many examples of it. I see uh, Noah confessing the sins of his children. He doesn't even know what the sins might be. And there are adult children that have left his home. And he's confessing their sins. I see uh, Daniel here confessing the sins of his entire nation. There's other examples of fathers to children, husbands to, uh, to wives. There's examples, you can turn to Numbers chapter 30 and you can see that dad gets a veto if a daughter makes a foolish vow. And then uh, if dad doesn't veto it, then uh, her husband will get a second shot to veto it when that uh, young girl leaves her father's house and, and is married to, uh, to, a, to a, a husband. And so uh, the girls get uh, a double portion grace provision in terms of the spiritual leadership of their father and of their husband. And so the value in intercessory confession, I think, is extraordinary in different, different contexts. And so here's uh, Daniel, and it's interesting because what's he doing? He's doing the same thing we were doing this morning. He's studying the book of, De- of Jeremiah. <laughs> All right. He's studying the book of Jeremiah. And uh, some of those enigmas that we were puzzling over maybe he was puzzling over the same ones or maybe he had a better handle on it um and he's revealing he's studying the book of jeremiah and he realizes man this is a 70 year captivity and we get to go back and he says man we're almost done with the 70 years and then he says wait a minute we're just as big of sinners as we were when we first got here (laughs) we've never confessed we've never repented how in the world will Yahweh bring us back to Jerusalem? Well, what's going to happen? We're going to get back to Jerusalem and then turn around and back around, come back to captivity for another 70 years? I mean, he's in a lot of turmoil here. Because he, he knows that Scripture cannot be broken. God's made a promise, but he also knows we haven't repented. We haven't confessed. So he takes it upon himself to be the confessor, to be the intercessor. He takes it upon himself. How Christ-like is that? to intercede on behalf of an entire nation. All right. And uh, so he gives attention to the Lord to seek Him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, and acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from Your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. You know, what a unique position he was in. A prophet by gift, but not by office. He was not sent to minister to any Jewish king. He was sent to serve Gentile kings. Anyway, it's a great example here. It goes all the way down to verse 20. It's a great example. Ezra chapter 10 and verse 1 is another example. Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping, prostrating himself before the house of God. Nehemiah 1.6 Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I am my father's house of sin. This is an intercessory confession. 
We have examples of it again and again and again of a believer that's identifying with his people. And he's not saying they're a bunch of sinners. He's saying we're a bunch of sinners. He's identifying with his people, his clan, his family, his tribe, his nation. And he's confessing their sins, our sins. There's uh, Job 33, verses 27 and 28. Another example of Old Testament confession. Matthew 3, 6. They were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Now that was a feature of John the Baptist's baptism service. You'll notice it's not a church age feature. <laughs> when uh, I just baptized uh, uh, three folks uh, last Saturday, and uh, never once did I ask them to confess any kinds of sins. Okay, That's not a feature of the New Testament ritual of water baptism for the, for the uh, church age. But it was a feature, and it will be again, by the way. When Elijah comes before the second advent and the nation has to prepare themselves for the king. All right. It will be a feature again for the Jewish people before the millennial kingdom. Luke 15. And uh, (laughs) a rehearsed confession as uh, the prodigal uh, worked it out in his mind what he was going to say to his dad when he saw him. Appreciate that. I love how his dad cut him off and didn't let him finish. A little script he'd been working on. And then uh, the tax collector and the sinner, you know. And uh, the one who was so thankful that he wasn't like the other guy. <laughs> and they're the guy that was so thankful that he, as a sinner he'd been forgiven and humble before the Lord. All right. So we have the confession principle. Walking in is the sphere in which the believer functions. So in the light. Okay, that's a sphere so in which we operate. It's also called in fellowship or in the bottom circle, if, if you're familiar with that terminology. And I like to draw the... Uh, I can draw pictures for you tonight. The, uh, the cross. And then what happens when we're saved? We're placed in Christ. All right, here we are in Christ. This is called top circle. And this is a one-way door. You never get out of this. You can't lose this. And, and the uh, operation that gets you in here is believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you, can be, and you will be saved. Right? But then we have our bottom circle, our fellowship circle. And this is what we're talking about tonight with walking in the light. And this is a useful diagram. I've known this since I was three years old, I think, or four years old. This is something I got in Sunday school. Very useful diagram because here we have the filling of the Holy Spirit. And this is our fellowship, which sometimes we don't have. This is our relationship, which we can never lose. You know, the prodigal never stopped being a son. He was still a son. Even when he's out there eating worse than the pigs, he's still a son. You never lose your relationship, even when you break fellowship and you lose your fellowship. So in the top circle, once you're in, you're always in, you're never out. But in, in uh, the bottom circle, we're in and out all the time, okay? Constantly, revolving door. You don't want it to be that way, but there it is, okay? And every time we commit a personal sin, or think about it, or want to, sometimes God thwarts us and doesn't let us do the deed, but we wanted to, we tried to, we, we would have if we could have. And so based on that mental attitude sin, we're carnal, we are out of fellowship, We are no longer filled with the Holy Spirit. We're indwelled by the Spirit, but not filled by the Spirit. And so the difference here being, and we don't have to get saved all over again, we have to believe all over again, the operative term here is confess. Confess. Okay? And it's simple as that. And then there's a third circle, which I didn't get from my childhood, but this is what Ralph Braun expanded it to. And this is our uh, function with the Father. And uh, we have relationship, we have fellowship, and here... The Father provides the leadership. And the operational function here is not believe, it's not confess, it's ask. Whatever you ask. And we go to the Father in prayer and we ask. And He's fully engaged in our ministry and our effects because it's the Father who's at work in us to will and to do of His good pleasure. But we'll never get to this circle without being in these circles. Okay? You've got to be saved. And you've got to be in fellowship. If you're carnal, if this is gone, forget about going to the Father. He's not listening. 
All he's waiting for is your confession. Then you can get your prayer life reengaged again. All right. This is fun. Man, I should have invented this years ago. This is pretty cool. Thank you, Lord. All right. So, in the light is also called in fellowship or in the bottom circle. All right. Sometimes it's useful, especially if you're training a child or someone that's new to this and say, Are you in fellowship or out of fellowship right now? Okay. And it's kind of a no-brainer. They're obviously out of fellowship. But let them say it, okay? And then say, well, then, you've got a process, and you know what to do. Come back to me when you're in fellowship, and we'll talk. I'm not going to talk to a carnal, a carnal uh, person, all right? When you're back in the light again, we'll talk, we'll pray. I love you. I'm not going to waste my time with you in carnality. Come back when you're, when you're spiritual. So, uh, personal sin moves us from light to darkness, causes us to lose fellowship, moves us out of the bottom circle. Confession of sin returns us back to the light, restores fellowship, moves us back into the bottom circle. And so, in paragraph four, I'm right there, and walking in, that's the description of of what I drew in uh, that diagram right there. Commit the sin, you're out of fellowship. Confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are back in the light again. It's as simple as that. All right, that's walking in. We also have walking by. Now, by, this speaks of method, means, or instrument that believers can utilize in order to walk in the light. Most of us came to church by car, all right? Unless you live close enough, you could have come by foot, all right? Or by bus or by helicopter or whatever you came by. Maybe uh, you developed superpowers and you flew or teleported or whatever, but whatever the me- the mechanism was, it speaks of mechanism, means, instrument, vehicle, walking by. And that's huge, okay? Because salvation uses the same terminology in terms of how we are saved by grace through faith. Grace is the mechanism, all right? We've got to understand this. So we must walk by something. It's either the Holy Spirit or it's the flesh. Um, the Holy, it's called walking by means of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 6, I'm sorry, 5, 16 and 25. Walk by the Spirit. You will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Again, it's, it's an absolute issue. You're either in the light or in the darkness. In fellowship or out of fellowship. Walking by the Spirit or walking by the flesh. Also, it's called walking by faith in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, walking by faith and not by sight. And I do equate those on a basic level. I think on an intermediate or advanced level, you want to distinguish them somewhat. But, if, but the fruit of the Spirit is faith, and so they don't contradict in any way. And it's not a problem to, to overlap them or to even take them as pure synonyms. Um, when you're not walking by the Spirit, you're not walking by faith and vice versa. So walking by the Holy Spirit is key to rejecting the temptations of personal sin and remaining in the light. This is how you can not sin, how you can stay in fellowship, how you can resist the temptations, how you can reject the temptations. You make use of the instrumental power of God, the Holy Spirit, in your walk. So walking by the Holy Spirit is defined as being led by the Holy Spirit. That's verse 16 compared to verse 18. And we highlighted this. This is something else we can do. We can double-click and then select part of the screen. And then we can start drawing pictures. I can even change colors. But here we have walking by the Spirit. All right. Active voice. I'm doing the walking. The Holy Spirit is the instrument. But then here we have led by the Spirit, passive voice. The Holy Spirit's doing the leading. I am being led. And they're both true. I am actively walking, but the Spirit is actively leading, and I am passively being led. And they're both true. They're they're simultaneously happening. If you are not passively being led, then you are not actively walking by the Spirit. They're both simultaneously true. Yeah, that's kind of fun. Walking by the Holy Spirit is key to rejecting the temptations. In fact, it's impossible for you to sin when you're walking by the Spirit. 
the temptation hits you and you're like Jesus. You just laugh at it. You quote scripture and you move on. You are empowered. It's not even, it's not even attractive to you. You're just like, hmm. You know, yeah, my carnality is probably attracted to that, but the Holy Spirit's not, so I'm not, and I'm just following Him. That's why it's the Holy Spirit dwells within each believer, teaching, empowering, and guiding us for the Christian way of life. This is why it is vital that believers do not grieve, quench, or resist the Holy Spirit. But then there's something else that lives inside of each one of us, and that's the flesh, that no good thing. We've got a rascal in there. And, you know, if the surgeons could find it, then maybe they could remove it. <laughs> okay? Uh, like they took out Pastor Cliff's gallbladder or something. Just try to find where is that sin nature and, and cut it out. All right? Problem is, I believe, the, uh, sin, the fallen sin nature in Adam is, uh, is the corruption of our very DNA. Every chromosome of our DNA is corrupted in this Adamic sin nature. And so there's no way to cut it out. We have to dump the entire body and get a new body, which thankfully is the plan <laughs> for all of us. Looking forward to that. It's called the no good thing in Romans 7. It's called the old man in Ephesians 4. It's called sin that is singular sin in uh, Romans 7. Uh, sometimes it's useful to spot the difference between sin singular and sins plural. And oftentimes sin singular is reference to that no good thing that lives within us. Or the old sin nature. Walking by the flesh is defined as being led by the flesh. Notice how the flesh is an active agent living within each human being. The flesh has desires. It has want-tos. It has lusts. It has desires. Its desires are in opposition to the Holy Spirit's desires. The flesh is an active agent. It thinks. And it outsmarts. It's smarter than us. Don't think you can outsmart it. Don't think you can trick it. Okay? Because the flesh is very good at what it's doing. And it's been doing it all your life. It's, it's, it's not a rookie at this. It has desires and actively works against the Holy Spirit's teaching, guiding, and empowerment. So choose you this day whom you will serve. Romans chapter 6 and verse 16. You know, the one that you present yourself to as slaves for obedience, you're slaves of that one to whom you obey. Either sin, singular, that's the sin nature inside you, resulting in operational death or obedience resulting in righteousness. You're going to walk by the Holy Spirit or you're going to walk by the flesh? Pick which one. Because that's the one you're going to serve. So submitting to the Holy Spirit's teaching, empowerment, and guidance is a preventative measure against sin. And this is what we, we can even wear it as a garment. We can wear it as the armor of light. Keeps us from sinning. And then finally, walking according to. In, by, and according to. What is our according to? Well, the standard is the Word of God. Believers learn that Word through the ministry of the Spirit. So, according to the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit guides us in the truth. All right, so this is our standard for walking. Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who are of the Spirit, according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. And so he guides us in the truth. All right. Any questions on any of that? Are we clear? Can you teach this to somebody else? All right, I've got a question. Here, Bob, is our microphone handy? Thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, so my question is about Romans six fourteen. Uh-huh. says that sin shall not have dominion over you. I'm wondering if uh, your take on it is more of um, walking in the light mm-hmm. um, and that being as the end point of walking in the light versus uh, walking by uh, the Spirit um, in that that... Yeah, I think it's it's uh, it's another way of saying the same thing. That that sin shall not be master over you because as you walk in the light, you cannot fulfill the lust of the flesh. You cannot commit a sin. I think uh, do not let sin reign so that you obey its lust. If if you let it reign, well then whose fault is that? You let it reign. Um, that's that's a, that's the similar principle being communicated there in that as well. Yes, sir. Thank you.
That's verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its loss. You know? If it's raining, well, whose fault is that? Who let that happen? You did. And you were told not to. <laughs> okay? That's a beautiful promise. I appreciate that. All right. Then the, the last part of the notebook goes into third circle and the prayer circle and uh, aspects there. We'll pick up with that next week. Because um, I want to, in fact, it wouldn't be bad to take a whole Sunday to, to center on that. And then uh, that'll wrap up peripatology and then get ready for thelamatology, the will of God. Okay? You know how to walk. Where do you walk? Why do you walk? What's the, what's the goal? What's the destination? Uh, walking is just basic. You know, a toddler can figure out how to walk, keep his balance, not fall down, okay? But the, the toddler doesn't exactly have the whole course of his life planned out, where he's going to go to college, who he's going to marry, what he's going to do for a career, or any of that. So, you know, walking is kind of a basic step, and then you've got to get a handle on the will of God. I'm walking. Where do I walk? What do I do, Lord? Here I am. Where do I go? So the will of God will be our, our next study. But we will take at least part of the time next week, if not the whole time, to, uh, to tackle this third circle and speak about the, uh, the role of the Father in the walk and the uh, role of prayer in the walk and how critical that is. So we'll pick that up next week. Thank you, Father, for this day, for this time together, for your faithfulness, for this basics class. Thank you for uh, letting me be the teacher of this basics class once again. Uh, We do pray for Pastor Dan and his ongoing candidating and just thank you for your faithfulness there. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.